Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most, Andy Russell and I examine how our culture's fetish for the new and shiny has distracted us from other important activities and values, including maintenance, repair, and care. Often in our society today, the word innovation just means good. It's taken to be a value in itself, which Andy and I argue it can never be. Innovation, which is just the diffusion of new things into society, can never be more than a means to an end. The question is, what end are we trying to reach? When we dig deeper into the notion of innovation, though, and ask, what is it supposed to get us? Often the answer is growth. Early innovation thinking is tied up with the history of thinking about economic growth, but the notion of innovation over the years has become associated with all kinds of growth, from organizational growth to personal growth. Growth follows a logic of addition. It's all about adding more. And yet, when we turn to maintenance, we see that growth sometimes sets us up for failure. For example, Chuck Marone of the organization Strong Towns has argued that U.S. infrastructure policy encourages municipalities to build new infrastructure without taking into account how they're going to pay for maintenance down the road. And often, these cities lack a tax base to do that work. It was with all these thoughts in mind that I first bumped into Lydie Klotz's interesting book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. As Lydie shows throughout the book, we pile on to-dos, but don't consider stop-doings. We create incentives for good behavior, but don't get rid of obstacles to it. We collect new and improved ideas, but don't prune the outdated ones. Every day, across challenges big and small, we neglect a basic way to make things better. We don't subtract. Lighty, who is a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia, sits at a really interesting intersection between engineering, design, and experimental psychology. His pioneering research shows us what is true whether we're building Lego models, cities, or strategic plans. Our minds tend to add before taking away, and this is holding us back. Subtract is one of those books that, if it gets really deep into you, deep enough, can change the way you see the world and your own activities. I had a lot of fun chatting with Lydie, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. Uh, 
Lighty, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you, Lee. Some of my best friends are at Virginia Tech and um, also uh, um, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law now graduated from there. So cool, man. I, I don't institution. I don't institutionally dislike you. <laughs> cool. I am. I'm too fresh to Virginia to really buy into these rivalries. So uh, we're in a good spot, I think. So uh, subtract is is a neat book. When you tell strangers about it, uh, what do you tell them it's about and what you were trying to do with it? Uh, it's about this way of making change that we systematically overlook. Um, and what I was trying to do with the book is help. Um, help people see that this is the potential in this in making change this way uh, and help them stop overlooking it a little bit. Yeah, so I, I really love, I mean, you have a neat kind of personal story about how you came to write this book or like part of it. I mean, you've been thinking about subtraction for a long time, it seems like, but there was also kind of moment it, it came together for you. So tell us a little bit about Legos and how it got you thinking about this problem. Yeah, I'm playing Legos with my son, who he's seven now, but he was two or three at the time. And uh, we were playing with his Duplo box, making a bridge. And the problem we had was the bridge wasn't level. And so I tried to solve this problem. I turned around behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column. Uh, by the time I had turned back around with the block in my hand, my son had removed a block from the longer column. And like you said, I'd always been interested in kind of minimalist design. I mean, my engineering and architecture background, I've always found those things interesting. Plus I'm really interested in sustainability. So there's mm -hmm. an inherent advantage there. Um, but this helped me really focus in on the act. You know, it's like, that's what I'm interested in, the act of, of taking away. And even, you know, so it was really helpful for me to hone my own thinking, also gave me a way to share that thinking with other people. Um, so I would take the bridge, uh, bridge, um, problem around with me to my meetings with students and have them do it and they would add like I did and then I took it to uh, my friend and collaborator behavioral science collaborator Gabe Adams and had her do it and I mean she's a genius number one plus I had been talking to her about what I thought was subtracting for a long time trying to convince her on how we could do some basic research on it <laughs> and so I thought she would at least subtract but she added and then when I explained it to her she's like oh what you're what you're interested in is why don't we subtract to make things better and I was like well yeah that's what I thought <laughs> I'd been talking about all along but, yeah um, so it's uh the lego has proven really really helpful and um I'll say one last thing about it. I mean, we've since done a, a ton of research, yeah. but the, the research really maps with what happened to me in that moment, you know, kind of analyzing it retrospectively, which is that it's not that we can't think of subtracting. It's that we think of adding first, right? Yeah. And that's what happened to me in that moment. I thought, okay, what can I add? And I was on my way to adding um, before even considering if, if subtracting might have offered a better solution um and so that's it's been a really great example because as lego is a three-year-old but it also maps really closely with the, the underlying cognitive process mm -hmm. that, that's happening and causing us to overlook subtraction in in more consequential um designs and changes yeah so i mean like you you work at a really interesting like intersection of engineering and architecture and city planning and and behavioral science so Give us just like, I mean, you in the kind of first body chapter, you really give, you really go through a bunch of different experiments you you did to kind of get at, you know, where this is coming from and the mechanisms and stuff. But can you just give us a taste of like what or two of the experiments you ran um, to try to uncover this? 
Well, I mean, we'll stay with Legos for the first one. So yeah. one of the criticisms of the Lego bridge, right, is that, well, people just might like adding if they add to that one, right? And you basically get the same level bridge, whether you add a block or subtract a block. So it's equal amount of effort. So a, a really easy, obvious answer there could be just be that, well, adding's better. That's why we add in that scenario. And so we needed um, to see if that was in fact true, if that was a fair criticism. We created a, a Lego example where you know, basically you're protecting a, a stormtrooper from getting crushed by a masonry block. And one way to solve it is to add eight Legos. Um, another way to solve it is to remove one Lego. Hmm. And you, we gave people money to, um, and gave them money at the start of the experiment and charged them money for each block that they yeah. moved. Um, and so when they added, in that case, it was proof that they didn't think, not necessarily they thought it was better, it was that they just weren't thinking of yeah. the subtractive option. Now that um, uh, shows that people add to their detriment, but it only when they're trying to protect the Lego from a masonry block <laughs> falling. So it's, it's a very limited yeah. kind of uh, transferability. Uh, probably my, my favorite experiment that we or the experimental setup that we used are these grid patterns on a computer screen. Um, and so we did this with Legos, travel itineraries, writing, which I was surprised people added to writing. And mm -hmm. like, well, that goes against all the advice we get about writing, but it's, you know, it's a powerful bias we have to add. Um, but all of those could be, could be subject to the same criticism. Well, that's just what we do in those cases, mm -hmm. right? That's just what we do when we're playing Legos. That's just what we've been taught to do when we're writing. Um, but the, the grid paradigm that we developed is basically having people make grid patterns symmetrical on a computer screen. And you could change these grid patterns by adding blocks to them or by subtracting blocks from them, which we gave people practice doing ahead of time. And basically we created grid patterns that could be made symmetrical by either adding blocks to three corners or subtracting blocks from one corner. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a variety of these patterns, but that was, was basically the same in all of them. And so when people added to three corners in those paradigms, again, with the same um, instructions that to do this in as few a clicks as possible, that, that wasn't something that could be explained by, okay, yeah. people just do this when playing with grids because it's not something that they had practice with. Um, and it also gave us a pretty uh, useful, um, you know, when we were doing the stormtrooper studies, it was really hard to, uh, <laughs> hard to get participants um, to, to do that. It takes a long time and a lot of uh, resources go into that. But with the, the computer patterns, you can do a lot of studies over and over and we can we could change things really quickly. So the, the grid patterns, in addition to showing that people overlooked subtraction, even when it was better, we could also change things about the grid patterns to help understand why this was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so back to this idea of, well, is it happening because they're thinking of adding first? Um, and so one of the things we did with the grid patterns was give people a reminder, hey, you can add or subtract to solve this. Mm -hmm. And of course, that increased rates of subtracting, right? Um, that's what reminders do, but it didn't increase rates of adding. Yeah. <laughs> so what that shows is that cognitively, we're already thinking of adding, but reminding people that they can subtract brings new ideas to mind. Um, and then the other, um, other 
cool manipulation that we did with those grids was put a scrolling list of numbers going by on the bottom and ask people to press an F every time a five went by. So basically you're distracting them. Yeah. And the theory there is that, you know, we have these default thinking processes, right. That, that are, that are helpful in most cases. And that's where we go automatically. Um, and we're even more likely to go to them automatically if we're distracted by something else. Mm -hmm. um, and so as expected, um, by the time we got to this study, at least as expected, when people were distracted by trying to press that F key every time a five went by, they became even more likely to overlook subtraction yeah. and go with their adding instinct. Um, so yeah, that, that's some examples of the studies, but also examples of how we kind of became more confident that this was something systematic and not just something that my um, that happened to me when I was playing Legos with my son. Yeah, man. I think you do a really nice job in that uh, chapter kind of spelling out the systematic thinking uh, that you were doing, kind of trying to make sure, checking yourself to make sure that, you know, go even farther. Um, it was, um, I mean, it was fun to do that. And I mean, in the chapter, I hopefully make really clear how important it was to have a collaboration yeah. just, you know, from different perspectives, but also from different disciplinary backgrounds. And so Gabe, I mentioned, and then also Ben Cam Converse and Andy Hales. And I also think it's something that, you know, as someone like you, who also cares a lot about communicating science to the public, showing people the what's happening here, yeah. right? There is a human element to it, but also there's often like a rigor there that um, is implied in the paper, the official scientific paper, but is doesn't, you know, if the, a lay person reading that doesn't understand all the iterations and all the thinking that went into it. So it was fun to be able to like write the paper, but also write the kind of, this is how it, the, the narrative of, of how it happened. Yeah, man, I think you did a great job. Um, in the book, you argue that, you know, that there's a bunch of forces kind of pushing us in direction and you kind of helpfully break that down into biological, cultural, and economic. So I wanted to tease this apart a little bit. Like what, you know, if we think in terms of evolution or like, you know, like what's the advantage of being primed to focus on more or addition rather than subtraction? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the evolution stuff and just the caveat that all of these forces are overlapping yeah. right? Um, and, and intertwined. And uh, so what I but, but by thinking about these forces, I think it also helps us understand what we can do to become better at not overlooking, subtracting. Um, so evolutionary forces, I mean, there's the obvious one that just acquiring food has been good for helping us pass down our yeah. genes. Um, and, you know, studies of rats or pack rats stockpiling nuts when their stash gets stolen. And you're like, well, that's obvious. That's what I do when I um, when my pantry runs out of food, I, I order another Instacart delivery. But the <laughs> but the um, but the pack rats aren't thinking uh, and deliberating the way that we are. Right. This mm -hmm. is just an instinctual thing that they do. And so that's a deep rooted evolutionary instinct we have to we share with them to acquire stuff um <clears throat> the other one that was really surprising but I, I think really powerful to understand how deep-rooted it is is uh competency so i knew that this idea of like okay I, I can show that i'm doing stuff was important right i mean that's obviously a reason we add whether it's physical yeah. stuff to you know, create monuments or um you know, going to a meeting that you're not really needed at, but if you if you show up, you 
it's obvious that you're doing something. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I was surprised how deep rooted that desire to display competence was. Um, and so like the biological example that I use in the book is bower birds. These are the birds that build ceremonial nests yeah. um, and the, the male builds a ceremonial nest. The females decide which male to mate with based on the nest. And then the female goes and builds a nest to shelter the, <laughs> the kids. Yeah. Um, and so the whole point of that first nest is not for shelter, which is a evolutionary need, but for showing off the, the showing off, um, but showing off in a very functional way, right? It's yeah. Like this, this male that's able to build a nest is probably a male that's going to be good at collecting food. So those are good genes for my kids to have. Yeah. And so this competence is really a deep rooted thing that we're working against in a lot of cases, right? Because you can show competence by taking away, but usually the evidence is invisible, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you, if you talk about a, a bower bird that creates a, you know, um, creates a really streamlined nest or like gets rid of the nest, um, that they're, they're doing something, but there's not really any evidence that they have of it. So those are some of the, the powerful, um, I think biological forces that are, um, that are kind of pulling us towards more. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to talk to you a bit about the, you know, the kind of intermixture of culture and, and psychology in a minute. But oh, one thing I wanted to, I, I felt like a theme running through the book that you draw out in various places is just that, and you already said it with the, um, the grid experiment you did, is that like stress and time poverty and distractions seem to be things that enhance this addition versus subtraction thing. So how do you think about that? That's a really fascinating issue. Oh, that's so reassuring that I, that's one thing that I wish I had drawn out even more in the book. So it's really nice to hear that you got that from the book. It's a it's a vicious cycle. Right. And so when we're busy, which is the very time that we need this. Yeah. Um, uh, both cognitively busy, as in the scrolling numbers study or as in like you're getting bombarded with a whole bunch of emails. Um, yes. That's when we're even more likely to add. Uh, and so you can see this playing out with your calendars, with, um, with your cognition. And so I think it's, uh, it explains a lot. Um, and it also, I guess the, it, it means we have to do very real work to, to relieve that, yeah. and to pull ourselves out of that reinforcing cycle and, um, do some subtractions that could actually solve the, the, the core problem as opposed to, you know, continuing to add. Yeah. I think does that, that makes sense. It does. Yeah. 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 And I think that, um, you know, I think there's a question where the propensity comes from, but I do think you're right that it's like, it's something that gets worse in, when we're, when we're strained. Um, and so, you know, yeah. And I want, yeah, that's a great, you know, where the propensity comes from. In addition to there being all these forces that might go into why we overlook subtraction, there are also a, a million, not a million, but there are a lot of cognitive and cultural and economic reasons that are not the thing that we found in our research yeah. that could also explain why we're overlooking sub subtraction. Hopefully I hit some of the main ones in the yeah. book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where this propensity comes from is there are open questions there still and a lot of research kind of indicating, uh, giving us some ideas there too. Yeah. So let's talk about culture for a second and then it kind of brings yeah. some of this stuff together. So. I think this is a direct quote, but maybe I was just taking notes. Cultures are born from more. Is that is that something you said? Uh, something yeah. close to that. Yeah. So tell, yeah, say what a... say what you or what you what we're getting at with that notion. Well, 
okay so you know the culture stuff if you think of it kind of at the start of of civilization right mm -hmm. and um the things that had to be there are um writing uh maybe some kind of like organized religion um monumental architecture is one thing that had to be there and so this is literally defined in you know lee you and i like the built environment stuff and we're, mm -hmm. we're nerds for it and so i'm like oh yeah cool monumental architecture but to see it like as this fundamental thing that has to be there for civilization yeah. to be a civilization was kind of uh, a surprise to me when i found that out but but basically monumental architecture is architecture that it's like the bowerbird's nest that exceeds any kind of obvious function for passing mm -hmm. down genes but there is a like a, a social function to it right and so if you go back to some of this early monumental architecture to, to build temples to build um, these big structures required people coming together mm -hmm. uh, and so when people were roaming around as bands of hunter gatherers and groups of 25 uh, to create this monumental architecture, they actually had to organize themselves and, and, and working groups and stay in one place, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that means, okay, how do we find stable sources of food? And so the, the theory is actually that, you know, not monumental architecture had to be there at the genesis of civilizations. It also might have been the thing that like started civilizations in the first place. Now, yeah. whether it just had to be there or whether it was the thing is not really important for what we're talking about here, but the fact that that's actually a conversation is is really important and so th those were diff those were kind of two forms of there's physical more there right yeah. there's the the social more there where you know if some of the examples i use in, of subtracting in the book are subtracting rules subtracting regulations subtracting you know the status quo there was no status quo before this time that for the civilizations to get built you had to add physical stuff, you had to add these social structures, you mm. had to add the information. And so, and then the, I think probably the place that that direct quote comes from is that like cultures of, uh, yeah, cultures of more expanded and then they turned into us, right? And yeah. so it's like, you've got this thing where if there was a civilization like the, the Quakers, <laughs> for example, that didn't necessarily believe in more and didn't ex believe in expansion, it got run over by some other civilization mm. that did maybe the you know native americans are a better mm. example but um so all over the world the 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 civilizations that acquired more land acquired more resources um expanded yeah. and turned into us um and, and that's a big overstatement but you know it's it's hard to find uh I think most of the people listening fall into that category. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a nice transition to like, I kept thinking about like, um, I mean, this is the kind of, you know, as someone who does experimental psych psychological work, um, this is the kind of impossible question to ask, but it's like, how much has consumer capitalism and these kind of consumer culture shaped these acquisitive things versus like how we were in i don't know 1825 or you know before then like how do you think about like do you think that these kind of more recent like how our culture works have ended up shaping these dimensions of us or just like i mean what's your gut say here because there's no way to check this ultimately right 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 yeah i i i would say consumer culture has a, a huge influence and i do talk about this like you know economic growth dogma yeah exactly is, is relatively recent actually yep. and you know we were there was a lot of more happening 
before this, but this idea that economic growth is a thing to be prized and measure, measuring gross domestic product, which you know everyone agrees is not the perfect way to measure progress. Yeah. And what we're interested in is maybe happiness or you know quality of life or some other indicator that 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 hasn't helped. Yes. You know, when when you're when you're when your primary measure is how much are we adding, then you're going to add. Um, but I would say that like doing this research and, and writing the, uh, both the empirical research and the research into like these evolutionary and cultural reasons, the thing that I think is most powerful is this kind of explanation that there's just not that we're just not surrounded by evidence of subtracting. Uh, uh-huh. And so it's another one of these cycles where subtracting is fighting an uphill battle, right? If mm-hmm. somebody adds something to make the world better, you know, you're walking around your Virginia Tech campus, you see this amazing library, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. hey, adding a library works to make the world a better place. And you get evidence of this. And then next time you go to make a decision, you're like, oh, you've got this adding example in it. Whereas if you... If somebody, um, uh, say, clears a derelict building from a city, creates a pocket park that looks really natural and um, creates, there's not really evidence that a subtraction created that after 20 years or so, right? It's just like, hey, that's a nice park. Um, And so, uh, and another example of that might be just um, me cleaning up around my house. If I just, if I add a new appliance in the kitchen, my wife's going to notice if I take away one of our 15 appliances, she's probably not going to notice that I like streamlined the efficiency of the kitchen. And so I think at all these levels, mm-hmm. when you add something, uh, there's just, we're, we're bombarded by these reminders of adding. And we know that like when we make decisions, things that are top of mind are more likely to get accessed. And so I think that that is in that, you know, that predates obviously the economic influence. Yeah. So I think that that's where the, um, that's where I would put like most of the blame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you make subtraction more visible? And I'd also say that it's like on a on a case, it depends also on the situation, right? So like the the fact that, you know, my 15 appliances in the kitchen, that's a consumer thing. Um, yeah. Mostly a consumer thing, probably. And some of these other ones are, are more to do with the what's visible and what's not visible. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? No, I mean, like, this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I wrote, uh, co-wrote this book called The Innovation Delusion, w- mm-hmm. which, um, you know, beats up on a kind of superficial ways of thinking about innovation and then talks about how we neglect maintenance and repair. And, yeah. and in that book, um, I mean, this is a very deeply related, I think. We talk about what we call the ribbon cutting paradox, which is like, <laughs> awesome. you know, like the, you know, pol- university presidents and policy, you know, and, and politicians, elected officials, there's like, you know, that you can literally create the like the the photo opportunity, right? To do the ribbon cutting. It's much harder to do that for like maintaining something nicely or or subtracting, right? I mean, I think that these two things are yeah. probably very uh related in this way. And so, like, you know, I, I heard about one activist group in New York City um that was holding like phony uh ribbon cutting things out of like derelict uh subway stations to kind of get at this issue like so you call it the noticeable less and you know it's like there's also the issue of the noticeable maintained because if it's just functioning i think it's very hard for people to like grasp that that someone should be rewarded for that you know what i mean yeah no i think the maintenance 
you're probably fighting an even harder battle because <laughs> the point I make with the noticeable less is like you can make subtraction noticeable, right? You, you just tend to have to do more of it. If I get all the appliances out of my kitchen, my wife's going to notice that whether yeah. she likes it or not is one thing. But but when you're just like keeping things running, you're yeah, that's that's even harder. I, but I do think you can we need to think of other ways to make that noticeable yeah. and sexy, right? Um, and uh, I mean, I don't think the books are the solution, but I think that by you pointing it out, that's really helpful. I didn't know that, that you had coined the term ribbon cutting paradox, because that's something that I talk about in my classes when I'm talking about, um, I'm teaching a sustainability class tonight, for example, and all so much of the focus is on these like fancy green new buildings. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's great. It's better than building a not green mm. building, but most of the opportunity here is in retrofitting what we've got. Yes. And, and Amen. How do you, <laughs> how do you incentivize that? Um, yeah, maybe and, not uh, building the new building is the best thing to do environmentally, you know, and most of the time. Yeah. 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 I wanted to talk to you, uh, you know, a bit about incentives too. So I'm, um, I'm reviewing, you know, this guy, Vaclav Schmiel, have you bumped into his stuff? Yeah. yeah. Like Bill Gates loves him. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm review. I'm writing, I'm working on a review of his, one of his recent books called Growth, um, uh -huh. which is just this, he always writes these massive tomes, but it's just about like the, the idea of growth as applied to populations and technologies and systems ultimately. And mm -hmm. in his kind of very wry way, uh, you know, he, it's all about how we can't keep what we're doing doing what we're doing ultimately with the environment and you know the planet but you know he's it's very light touch and he's just using the numbers to kind of like beat you over the head with it without telling you what to think but i was i was so i was reading your book and and reading his book at the same time and it was like you know i kept thinking like what happens when our neglect of uh subtraction combines with like a relatively recent world full of cheap shit you know like <laughs> We've used mass production to like drastically reduce costs of everything right. from clothing to like all the plastic stuff we can buy at Walmart and Target, you know? And then I, I was just thinking about your like what you're saying about this propensity that we have, you know, to acquire and to not reduce unless we're into Marie Kondo. We'll talk about that later. Uh, you know, it's just it's a really interesting thing about like the propensity you're talking about wherever it comes from and then this this changed environment you know and like what ends up happening as a result of that yeah and the i mean the changed environment is that like humans are the dominant influence on the planet now yeah. right so before when it was adding it's like you're you know you're making the area where your city is look different now it's you're literally changing the the planet and how you know how yeah. it supports life um human life and all other life so the scale is much bigger and i mean the i'm sure uh Schmil's book is is great and like i would love to see the the latest numbers on that i mean but the, the idea that there are limits to growth is not yeah. not a new one no. right and um it seems you can argue about where those limits are but it's hard to argue that there, there are limits, right? Yeah. Somewhere. And, um, <clears throat> and it's, you know, uh, one of the papers that I cite in the book is this, you know, really nice study that uh, some a team of scientists did about planetary boundaries. So they defined 10 planetary boundaries and like, where are we on these, these boundaries for critical life support systems? And some of these boundaries we've, we've already exceeded, um, depending, uh, depending on how you how you slice and dice the numbers. Yeah. Um, 
And so, so yeah, I think that, and then, you know, where does subtraction fit in, right? Because there's always been this argument, okay, well, there's the growth side where people say, well, we've got to keep growing. We've got, but what they're really saying is we've got to keep innovating and keep making progress, yeah. which I totally agree with. And then on the, then there's another side that's like, okay, conserve, there are limits. We've got to kind of um, uh, be respectful of those limits. And these are not like climate change deniers. These are both yeah. really well-meaning arguments of ways to make the world a better place. Right. And um, subtraction, I think, offers something that isn't considered a lot in, the, in those two parallel arguments, which is that, you know, you can make progress you can continue innovating you can continue striving and even maybe using the the current industrial model mm. uh, but if you're subtracting to make progress you're by definition not running up against these limits i mean just like ezra's solution to the bridge had one less block that saved a block got got us a level bridge um yeah and you know you exp extrapolate that out to other types of subtractive innovation in the real world and yeah. there might be a lot of untapped potential there. So I think if you look at it on this uh, kind of scale of from when civilization started to where we're at now, like now there are way more opportunities to subtract. Yes, we've long overlooked it, but also subtracting can be a way to kind of provide the best of both worlds mm -hmm. where you continue to make progress, but also um, stay within limits. And yeah. of course, you know, this th that's not a it's not a simple problem, right? This is the problem no. of our lifetimes, yeah. but I think that's the, the small role that taking away can play in it. Yeah. But I think what you say about, you know, subtraction and addition also um, could, could be another reason why so many people want there to be a kind of magic bullet technological solution to the problem instead of looking at subtraction as a, as an answer. Cause you know, maybe, maybe we're just set up to, to be biased in that direction, you know? I mean, there's all kinds of other reasons too about the culture of innovation and what we think of invention. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but it feels like another one in the mix. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, even if you look at some of the climate engineering yeah. <laughs> proposals, right? It's like, I mean, there are subtractive climate engineering proposals, removing carbon dioxide from the air being one of them. But for a long time, we've got this problem of climate change, which is really, you know, pretty clear the technical problem is there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere and we're thinking about, okay, how do we add less, right? Yeah. And very little focus on how do you take CO2 out of the atmosphere? And hmm. Again, we're focusing on that more now, but we didn't for a long time. Yeah. And even now with climate engineering, a lot of the proposals, and I, you know, I'm not an expert in climate engineering proposals, but the ones where you're like, okay, let's throw a mirror up in space and reflect the sun's rays. You're basically adding something to, yep. um, Geoengineering, yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just for these complex systems that we don't, you know, it's not like anyone tried to screw up the planet yeah. uh, initially by adding CO2 to it. It's that we didn't understand how the system worked and we, we changed it and now it's, you know, moving to a different state. But when you don't understand a system, it seems to make more sense to remove things from it that you've added to it, because at least then it's going back towards a state that you understand a little bit. So, yeah. you know, I guess the, the short way of that point is, I mean, adding CO2 to the atmosphere unintentionally, look where that's gotten us. Um, and then imagine like putting these space mirrors up there and you're thinking, well, 
we think it should work. But, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but what yeah. you're doing is messing with a complex system that you don't really understand by adding stuff. I think all else being equal, taking stuff out of that complex system is going to be better. Yes. The other, um, you know, the kind of, kind of incentive-based thing I was thinking about is, um, so like you, in, in the innovation illusion, Andy and I talk about this thing. We call it the growth mindset. And um, mm. one of our heroes in the book is this guy named Chuck Marone, who runs this group Strong Towns, which is a, a group that tries to make, uh, you know, municipalities like financially viable and, and secure. And he, cool. he has this cool uh, essay series called the Growth Ponzi Scheme. And one of the things he writes about is that the way U.S. infrastructure policy is set up is that the federal government makes it super cheap and even free for localities to borrow or take money to build infrastructure. But then what's happening is that municipalities are signing up to to maintain and repair that structure in forever, you know, until until you until you retire the system, basically. And what he's, he and his colleagues have shown is that a lot of times cities have as much as twice the amount of infrastructure as their tax base, okay? Because no one's holding them accountable to that. Right. So it's just like, it was a really, for me, it was like thinking through your book, it was an interesting way where like, I think, you know, the ribbon cutting paradox is one example, but this is a, you know, this is even like the way we set up our, you know, our infrastructural financial systems in a nation is really incentivizes growth and incentivizes addition um, in, in a sense, because we don't, we don't make the costs of addition really evident, you know, but I was just thinking right. about, I mean, I feel like there's all kinds of places are in our culture where we, we really, is in, it's, there's incentives to add and, you know, subtracting is just not incentivized in the same way. Yeah. I mean, the one that, home square footage is another one, yeah, right? Exactly. It's like if you look at your Zillow home estimate and yeah. you're planning a home renovation, it makes zero sense to do a renovation that doesn't add square footage yeah. um, because it's all based on how many square feet this thing is. And that's one that, I mean, the infrastructure one is a great example too, but that's kind of more of a policy one. The square footage is like, that's us doing yeah. it to ourselves, <laughs> yeah. right? That's how much we value the, <laughs> the square footage as opposed to like the quality of the, the space. Um, I liked the moral yeah. place of your home edition in the book. It was, uh, uh, it was an interesting <laughs> theme to come up, uh, to kind of think through. Yeah, it's uh, I ran a subtract for your listener. I ran a contest um, and this was, you know, before I, the Lego bridge experiment, but definitely when subtracting was on my mind. And I for the students here, um, addition by subtraction, we, we moved into a small house. Uh, we had moved from a bigger house to a small house when we moved to Virginia and uh, needed to we knew we were going to need to renovate it. And so I challenged the students to come up with subtractive ideas mm -hmm. and, you know, nobody subtracted anything some came up with some pretty smart ideas within the existing footprint but then i ended up adding about a you know 900 square feet mm -hmm. onto the back of our house and mm -hmm. um you know it's that's our biggest financial investment i mean we needed the space too it's yeah. like we had a a kid and another kid on the way but uh it was really hard to get past that financial thing of like we're not going to invest you know a, a whole bunch of money in this house and not come away with additional square footage yeah. it just doesn't make sense um so yeah there there are all these kind of forces pulling pushing us in that direction what's the solution for the infrastructure one is it to um 
for things to cost more. I mean, my friends who study water are always saying that, you know, we just don't pay the yeah. cost of water. <laughs> um, yeah. So it comes out. I mean, there is uh, there's alternative accounting systems that have been mm. floated where um, because um, basically uh, existing infrastructure for municipalities isn't counted as a liability currently. So if okay. you like when you're applying for um, for new infrastructure funding, if you had to make visible how much uh, kind of like infrastructure liability you already have on the books, um, you could either set a standard or it might just be the process of making it. Some people have argued just making it visible would lead to um, change behavior. I think there's yeah. a there's an analogy. Some people say that like so an analogy I've heard I've never really dug into this is that. For a long time, um, uh, municipalities didn't have to count pensions as liabilities. So how much money they owed downstream to pay out to workers wasn't basically accounted for in, in the financial statements. And once that once they once there was they were forced to do that by the federal government, there was all kinds of change behavior and also bankruptcies. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff people have been thinking through is how to represent it. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, I mean, so th then what do you do? And then there's the whole issue of what do you do in places where the, the like Detroit, where the infrastructure needs are, are shrinking and yep. like systematically yep. do that so that you're not paying for infrastructure for a huge city when you actually have a smaller city. Um, yep. Yeah. Important stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's an existential kind of issue for our nation is we do have a lot of shrinking communities that have these systems that were built for populations 50 years ago. And it doesn't make sense anymore, but it's hard to convince the federal government to bail out every city, you know, in the, that's facing this. So I don't know. It's really tough stuff. So, you know, once there's a kind of 12 step moment, AA moment where like maybe someone is convinced they have a problem around this this issue of not seeing subtraction like what are the first things you tell people about how they can uh kind of tack towards towards kind of seeing subtraction as a solution more often yeah i mean the, exactly what you just said is the seeing subtraction as a solution more often right so just like putting this in their mind mm -hmm. a, a reminder that this in fact is an option and i think that's really important first step. And one of the reasons that I like talking to people like you is, I mean, I think when people listen to a podcast like this, they'll be less likely to overlook subtraction when they read the book, even less likely to overlook it. I mean, that's like seven hours with this idea. Um, and then also, but I think it's also really important to put those reminders that it's an option at the point of decision making, mm -hmm. because you know, we just because you are reminded that you can subtract in Legos, then you yeah. need to, you know, plan your schedule and all of a sudden you're right back to just adding shit onto it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> so in these important decision-making moments in your life or in your, in your work life that may be even more influential, how can you put in place reminders to subtract? So it's like when I'm doing my weekly to-do list, can I also consider stop doings when I'm, yeah. um, when I'm adding, you know, deciding what I'm going to read for the week, uh, which I wish I did more systematically, but like, can I also decide like, okay, here's information that I'm not going to look at, or I'm just like, gonna not 
read any more of these emails because the time is finite and the, mm -hmm. the cognitive processing is all like what you can devote your full attention to is also limited. So, um, so, but the, the main subtracting tip there is putting those things at the, putting those reminders that this is an option at the point of making the decision. Um, the other, you know, having done that, I think subtracting first is a really good practice. Mm -hmm. um, and so, we, I we talked about the complex systems in terms of the planet before, but even just if you think about your your life as a complex system, yeah. it makes sense to strip things away before you decide what to add on because you might be adding something that fixes something that's not a problem if you subtract it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. right? uh, Beautiful. I like that. That's a good reminder right there. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, yeah, so, so subtracting first. Um, Remembering that you can, uh, that it's add, add and subtract, yeah. not just, um, so, I mean, you know, obviously I'm, you know, my role is to remind people that subtracting is an option, but I'm totally, I'm, you know, I put an addition on my house. I'm not anti-adding. It's yeah. just that we already think of that option. And one problem is that when we think of adding, if we think of adding and subtracting as opposites or like exclusive to each other, then when we add something, we're like, okay, well, subtracting is not an option. Well, in the scenarios that we're talking about, right, what we're talking about is when we encounter a situation, we try to make it better. Yeah. Um, these are complementary ways to make change, right? Yeah. So adding can make change. So if you thought instead that, okay, I've just added something, hey, maybe I should think about subtracting something in my brainstorming or as an option, mm -hmm. um, that would also be helpful. So thinking add or subtract. And then the last one, we've talked a lot about these systematic disadvantages that subtracting faces. I mean, one systematic advantage it has is that you can reuse your subtractions, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can't forget to do that. The example I use in the book is, is donut holes. So, and it took a, a long time to figure out donut holes. And so, you know, basically people were frying dough and the problem was that in the middle, you've got this soggy piece that's not as good as the rest. Plus there's not as much surface area to put sugar and, and great things um and so mm -hmm. somebody thought to take the dough out of the middle right and that makes the donuts cook more evenly more places yeah. to put sugar but then you've also got the donut hole right you can reuse that and you can sell that and you've got this byproduct so the subtraction leaves you with something left over and i mean the donut holes is kind of a, a trivial thing um and i suppose you could mush all the dough together and make a donut but um but when you talk about physical things uh, well not so well Ezra's Lego bridge for example he's left with two more blocks than I was left with and those are blocks that you can then use for something else um, I mean when it's your your calendar right you subtract something off your calendar and now all of a sudden you've got that space that you can do something else with so um, so just remembering that uh, because sometimes we don't subtract we think oh well I don't want to do it it gives us a negative feeling uh, we feel bad about losing something but you're not doing it um, just to take away. You're doing it because the end state that you're getting to is going to be better and you can reuse your subtractions in that end state. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, how do, do you think there's like, so that it's, I like what you say about making subtraction part of the decision-making process. This is the yeah. same thing that we say about maintenance and repair is that right. so often like downstream maintenance costs are not considered by decision makers when they're adding on computer systems and software systems and all this stuff to like universities. Right. And then we end up with oh, yeah. these terrible legacy systems and, and yeah. stuff like that. So, you know, we, we, we say, um, 
you know, like making it part of the an explicit part of the decision making process. I think that's what you know, making it a subtraction, like something you have to do go through on the checklist to make sure you're really doing the work uh, could be really useful. Yeah, I think uh, it's a it's a it's a very basic option that we have that we're overlooking. It's the same with maintenance repair that I mean, one of the things when I say add and subtract, people will say, oh, there's also you can like rearrange stuff or and that's kind mm -hmm. of what maintenance and repair is. You're you're working with the stuff you've got to keep it yeah. functioning the way you want it to. And so, yeah, uh, considering considering those basic options, um, it seems like we just think about adding. Yeah. So it's about like uh, learning by subtracting. I really like that chapter a lot. So I, mean, I think this is like when I went into your book, I was thinking about information overload like immediately as like mm -hmm. a, a theme. And then you kind of, um, you know, that's that's a place where you end up going. So, you know, like how do you think about this, the role of subtraction and learning and, and cognitive work in general? Well, that's why you liked it, right? I I do hit some uh, STS people there, right? Or at least that's some true. science historians. I mean, I've got Kuhn in there, but also um, like Anne uh, Blair. Anne yeah. Blair, yeah. yeah. Well, and so Anne Blair, that's that was really surprising to me, right? Because you like, okay, this new information, uh, new the information age, we're inundated with emails, but she has this great book. Uh, I think hers is too much to know. Is that it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. And. Uh, and she talks about this has been the case since there's been information ever since yeah. when when people started writing, there were people warning of like, oh, this is gonna too much, <laughs> too, too much, much information, too much yeah. writing is gonna make the mind weary and like really respectful period people. Um, so this was not like a fringe thought. Uh, and so she lays out the ways that people have dealt with this throughout time. I mean, encyclopedias, right? It's like, here's the important information. There's this cool yeah. project they did. It's like, what's all the, if we had to recreate civilization, that's that's the filter, right? That that if information would help with the recreation of civilization, it goes into this this document. If it doesn't, it doesn't go in. Um, but then, uh, I mean, it is true that we're facing different situations than yeah. people before us have faced right with social media and that kinds of that kind of information and um and we do need to be able to to subtract in in those situations right and, and yeah take, make sure that this doesn't um kind of overload our processing capabilities one thing that i talk about is i mean the difference between working memory and just uh uh just stuff we know and i mean it's pretty if you look at the research, it, we, we can know a lot, we can cram a lot of stuff into our brain. And I, I you know, the limits are very less clear there. But um, in terms of the things that we can actually bring to the task at hand, it's not a ton of things that we can remember. This is yeah. why five item checklists are so effective, or, um, you know, just a, a bulleted list of things to remember. And if you get past the the seventh bullet, um, you know, you're you're basically defeating the purpose because you're hmm. yeah you, you might be adding something useful, but if it's not as important as the other bullets, you're kind of watering down the whole thing. So um, so like yeah, being really conscious with what we keep in our working memory, and I think this is where we run into where I at least run into problems. It's like oh yeah, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, they're all interesting, but what what are the things that I want to have with me when I'm making decisions. Um, 
And then the other one is just how hard it is. So that's that's the inundation with information, but then also when we're learning, right? We learn the exact same way it turns out that we kind of build things. It's just we we have these mental models and we add them. Uh, it's mm -hmm. been called construct constructivism, right? Yeah. So it's like we're adding stuff that we learn to our mental models. And most of the time it's right, but there's it's really, really hard to remove misconceptions mm. from our mental models. And so yeah. um, there's a famous psychology example where the researcher joins a cult. And these are people who believe that the doomsday is coming. And uh, I mean, it's just mm -hmm. such a brilliant idea for an experiment, right? Um, they believe the doomsday is coming. And so he joins the cult and uh, sees to see what happens. And it's a good plot, a good idea, right? Because if if the doomsday happens, he's good. He's in with the cult. If it doesn't happen, he's got, <laughs> he's got his surefire. Nice paper yeah um and uh of course it doesn't happen but w as he's sitting in the room it's supposed to happen at midnight and people start debating well that's not the official clock of yeah. the apocalypse right <laughs> and they and so they're starting to shift their beliefs and then by about four o'clock in the morning the cult leader says it worked you know our our faith has staved off yeah. the, the doomsday and people shift their beliefs so and that's you know cult follow Hopefully, a lot of us are, don't think the same exact way as, as those groups, but it's the same process by which my son's belief in Santa Claus evolves, right? I say, yeah. you know, he gets a Lego set from Santa Claus, and he's like, well, this is confusing. I didn't know that Santa could do plastic. And uh, and I say, oh, well, for stuff like that, Santa works with Amazon. And so here's <laughs> yeah. two things that he knows about. Right. And it's like, rather than subtract the notion of Santa, which yeah. there's other reasons not to subtract that notion, but rather to say, oh, this thing that's in my mental model is is clearly wrong based on this information I've pre been presented. We kind of smash mm -hmm. stuff together. And then like education scholars, there's been the, you know, the whole history of misconceptions, right? And identifying these misconceptions that people come into the classroom with, it, it makes a ton of sense. It's like subtracting first, right? You've got to start people on a, if, if they've got this wrong idea about, you know, the, the sun revolves around the earth, you've got to fix that before you start um, teaching them new things. But they found that it's really hard to remove misconceptions. Also, it, it yeah. takes away some of the, I mean, the, the sun earth one is a, is one that's easy to remove in a non-controversial way, but there are also like cultural differences that can, mm -hmm. um, be problematic if you just try to remove misconceptions. So now people, when teaching, are trying to work much more with how people actually learn, which is like we adapt the the new information to the old um, mm -hmm. information that we have in our mental models. So that's a hard one. I, I don't know if I had a, a surefire way to remove the wrong stuff from your mental models. I'd um, be screaming it from the from the rooftop oh dude but, we could use that if you come up with that uh killer app yeah. let me know because uh... <laughs> but i do think that you know just recognizing again that this is another place where it's an option right and you know yeah. people like us spend a lot of time thinking we could spend some of our time thinking about like hey here's this thing that i used to think but now i don't think i mean i know for me like some of the rethinking i've done around um like the systemic nature of racism has forced me mm -hmm. to subtract some, some beliefs that I had that when I consciously evaluated, okay, what are the things that I think, um, it made sense to remove this notion of like a, 
perfect meritocracy or even like a, a yeah. decent meritocracy. So, um, so yeah, removing removing wrong ideas can be powerful and also is hard. Yes. Uh, going back briefly to the um, you know the the inundation problem, I was just think when I was reading the book, I was thinking about like the feeling of busyness and. I think Schmiel, again, I was reading this while I was reading Schmiel. I think he says it's like our media consumption is now up to like 5.5 hours a day or something like that on average. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking about like how much, how much uh, our, our feeling of busyness could be changed just through, you know, it wouldn't be everything, but that through one change of like killing, hanging out on Twitter or whatever. So yeah, I mean, like, how have you thought about that in your own life? And what is your relationship to media at this point, having thought about subtraction for a long time? Yeah, I, um, Cal Newport's book were really helpful for me. He has a book on digital minimalism. He has a newer yeah. book on the world without email, but it, um, and digital minimalism really helped me with my digital life. Um, and so like some, he's, he's pretty uh, practical with his suggestions. So one is just, um, you know, don't let the media control you, you control the media. So things like taking the social media off your phone, basically things that people make money when you click on it, take those things off your phone, um, which which makes a lot of sense and kind of helps cut down that that number and also allows you to still use the, I mean, I, some really useful things have happened for me through mm -hmm. Twitter and LinkedIn, um, and I can still use it for stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's been helpful for me. I think the uh, I mean, the television is an, an easy one to just kind of cut out almost entirely. Uh, yeah. Um, or cut out binge watching. I mean, it's funny that binge watching has become this thing that like, OK, that's an acceptable thing to do. But right. no other no other form of binging is seen as a positive. Yes. Right. It's like, <laughs> you wouldn't say I'm going binge drinking or I'm going binge right. eating or I'm going binge shopping. It's like I'm going oh, on a bender. The whole weekend is gone. You know, yeah. I said, like you don't say that as a 40 year old person, usually, you know, right. like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. even if you when I was 20, if, like, yeah, I wouldn't say I was binging. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's, uh, uh, so yeah, back to, I think that's a really important question of like in this fire hose of information, how do you kind yeah. of like put limits on it? And those are some really concrete ways to do so, but I think, you know, different things work for different people, but it is, yeah, the, oh, that's where I was, I wanted to point out. Yeah. You mentioned 5.5 .5 hours of media consumption and then another information stat that stuck with me was that. On average, we like process a thousand words a day or a hundred thousand words a day. And so like my book is 70,000 words and a lot, right. a lot of those are So, I mean, we're like reading all this useless stuff and yeah, it's just yeah, kind yeah. of like put in front of us, whether it's a, yeah. you know, a group email or whether it's a, an advertisement. And if we can be totally. deliberate about that, I mean, so think about how much better off you'd be if, I mean, three days a week, you read a book instead of encountering this other information. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I found the concept of content to be very helpful for me. I feel like there's, I mean, you kind of allude to it in your own life, like being on the elliptical or the yeah. whatever piece of exercise equipment. I found that there was just a, there was a propensity in myself to just kind of like fill up all time with like podcasts and all kinds of stuff, you know, to <clears> always <throat> have content going. And just like, uh, as I've, really moved away from that kind of stuff in general and social media, especially, I just found my mind to be much calmer and 
actually able to do the things I want to do uh, better, you know? So, um, like yeah. Producing, like producing content, right? And yeah. I think, I mean, and the level at which you understand something after having produced it is, you know, infinitely more deeply than if you uh, had just acquired it. So, yeah, I mean, I used to listen to podcasts and watch the news while running on the treadmill. And I mean, I spend a lot of time acquiring content, um, mm -hmm. listening to podcasts and reading books. But I also, you know, when I kind of checked myself, realized that running is when I would process things, right? It's, yeah. that's, that's when I would filter out ideas and figure out yeah. which ones, okay, yeah, this is cool, but not relevant to what I'm working on. This is the idea I need to focus on. And so I never had time for the, the processing that kind of turns the ideas to, to wisdom or, or knowledge yeah. at least. I like your use of wisdom too. That's a word I've been using increasingly. So, um, What's what's up next, man? With you, you're going from subtract. What's the what's the next? Do you have any a new big project, or do you have a million and a half things going on? What's the new thing? No, I, it really um, one great thing about like working on the paper and the book at the same time. I mean, this paper took eighteen. It just took an, in, a ton of I time bet. more than any other paper I'd worked on. Plus, I was working with three other people, and yeah, and the in the book at the same time, it just really showed me the value of. I mean, not cutting out everything else but really focusing on one good thing yeah um, i think uh for the professors listening obviously we have yeah. the, all these incentives to kind of slice and dice things to show that we're doing a lot and um kind of uh focusing on the quality of the the things that that we do is maybe more beneficial for society um and so so yeah definitely not uh i'm trying to think of the next big thing i'm not quite there yet um yeah and it's that's it's good also, too this is like a really unique opportunity for me to get to talk to people like you about the book and see like so, see what um what ideas kind of resonate with people what things kind of bubble to the top what the reaction is what's needed um yeah and, you know so dude so we'll i think see. you could make yeah. hay with this idea for a long time personally i think yeah, know, that's, if anything, you could do follow-ups to it, honestly. Um, so I've gotten yeah. a ton of, um, and I got to figure out, because I don't really have much interest in this, but I mean, just, I've been able to talk to people and the companies that I talk to, and, yeah. you know, the, you know, they're like, here are our five things we're doing, and it's like, man, that would be super useful for other people, and so figuring out a way to, like, share those really practical tips, but also not spending my career on it, because, I, I mean, I really like this, um, and I think I'm kind of uniquely positioned to look at this intersection of, um, you know, behavioral science and mm -hmm. design. Uh, and so whatever I do next as like a serious project is going to be in that vein. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. great. But I'll, I'll keep making hay with subtraction. It's fun. It's fun to see <laughs> like an idea help people, even if it's not in the way you thought it might. Yeah. Well, I think I think it is a really unique book and uh, a really creative kind of combination of fields and stuff. So uh, thank you so much for writing it and for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you, Lee, for, for your work uh, and also for taking the time to talk to me. This has been a really fun and um, and productive conversation for me. It's helped shape my thinking.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.